Welcome to the City and Guild's Green Edge podcast with Dr. Michael Cross and me, Fraser Harper. In the previous City and Guild's Green Edge podcast, we heard the simple fact that there are no parts of our economy and no parts of our society that will not be touched by the green transition. And the scale is huge. For net zero, we'll need double the amount of electricity than we currently generate in the UK. And for all that electricity to be renewable, we'll need four times more offshore wind than we have right now. The huge move to electrification of transport means, among other things, that by 2030, around one quarter of the vehicles on Britain's road will be electric. And we'll need six times as many electric vehicle charging points as we have today. And of course, there's all that insulation and low carbon heating to be installed in Britain's almost 30 million homes, along with its offices, factories, churches, castles, and presumably stately homes and palaces. And all that before we even start to think about agriculture, food production, logistics, fashion, healthcare, and goodness knows what else. What does all that mean for you and me? Well, it should mean lots of jobs. And against the backdrop of a labour market that's only growing at one-third the rate it did in the first two decades of this century, and with lots of experienced people leaving the labour market at an alarming rate, then the UK needs to get cracking with all the upskilling, cross-skilling and green-skilling it needs to make net zero happen. As part of this, City and Guilds is building its portfolio of qualifications in line with what it sees as its responsibility to ensure that we have sufficient numbers of skilled people for the green economy. I'm Fraser Harper of The Green Edge, and I'm talking to my colleague, Dr. Michael Cross. Michael, lots of job opportunities right across the sustainability spectrum. That's putting it mildly. The scale is huge because we're talking about 20% of the labour force as it currently stands having direct green roles and a further 20% having indirect green roles. So that's 40% of the labour market. But if we drop beneath that, you mentioned energy. We've got all the new energy sources of wind, both on and offshore, solar, and of course, tidal is a real huge potential area, and the growth of nuclear, which has been well established for many, many years. But also on the energy front, we've got whole energy storage, energy efficiency, the capture of waste energy and its reuse, the whole distribution of energy, and the smart systems managing the flows of energy. So energy in its own right is unbelievably large growth. But again, as you said, every building has to change how it consumes and how it generates its own heat. So there's a vast range of jobs coming across the whole of the built environment. And that's not just the people who are building, but also the people who are designing, allocating and thinking about buildings into the future. Then you move into transport across every means of movement. Change is happening. You picked up on EVs, but also aerospace, maritime, rail, public transport are all changing. And that's just three of the major sectors. I could go on to another six or eight more sectors that are radically changing at the same time. I think the scale of this is enormous, and we need to differentiate between those roles that are getting the new infrastructure into place and those that will be there to maintain and sustain that, 
and those that are going to invent the technologies to improve on what we know today. So there's a lot going on. And therefore, anyone popping their heads out of school at 18 and thinking of their university degree or a vocational programme, there are golden opportunities all over the place, both in terms of sectors and in terms of geography, because this affects literally everywhere. Well, Michael, as you said there, there's certainly the incentive for people to get out there, get qualified and get working in the green economy. And the qualifications landscape is changing, isn't it? It's adapting to the requirements of net zero. It is. And one could argue it isn't for lack of qualifications popping out from multiple awarding bodies like City and Guild. It's more having sustained demand in large enough numbers in enough locations to allow those courses to operate. And that therefore begs a few questions about how that training will be delivered and how much can be delivered through some form of portfolio of assessment of competence and demonstrating competence by actually doing work and therefore acquiring it through what I would call structured familiarisation rather than formal training programmes, perhaps. We'll come back to that uh, in a few minutes. But obviously, all of these sectors, this is huge. And within a podcast like this, we can't cover all these opportunities. But let's talk about one of the most important sectors right now, at least, and that's domestic retrofit. Now, domestic retrofit, which is all about modifying dwellings so that they have improved energy efficiency, is a range of things. First, there's the fabrication of the dwellings themselves. So insulation, moisture control, reducing heat loss from ventilation and so on. And then there's the energy efficiency around things like lighting and appliances. And finally, there's the fitting of efficient heating and cooling systems with smart controls. And this is where for an increasing number of people, we're talking about heat pumps. There's a whole standard, Michael, which helps us to understand the occupations involved in domestic retrofits, isn't that? The standard is past 2035. And it lays out the core roles around retrofitting in terms of the whole design, the coordination, the assessment, the evaluation of the whole project in its various phases. But within that, there are then specific roles, which we would gradually recognise as extensions of existing occupations. Now, for these core roles coming from past 2035, Michael, you there mentioned retrofit design coordination, assessment and evaluation. And we know there's also the whole piece around advising of clients, whoever they may be. How will people get qualified for these kinds of jobs? Initially, I think you'll find them in two camps. One is through the IFATE set of standards, and they're creating a retrofit coordinator, for example. But also you'll find it popping up across and if you go onto the Ofqual database, a series of retrofit roles are already being seen to be developed around individual qualifications. And if you go to a third source, which are job adverts, you actually see this job title, retrofit coordinator, retrofit surveyor, retrofit assessor, retrofit evaluator, also being advertised as well. And these are roles that oversee whole retrofit projects. And these might not be projects that are done in a single phase. These are multi-phase projects, so people can do it stepwise as they increasingly make their homes more net zero. Well, as Michael said, we're seeing the emergence of new qualifications around the types of retrofit roles defined in past 2035. And one of those is a new level three certificate for retrofit advisors, which City and Guilds is introducing in early 2024. 
And City and Guilds has also produced a useful retrofit careers pathway, which shows how people from construction trades, non-construction careers, or from technical professions can gather certificates or awards that can take them through into roles like domestic energy assessors, retrofit advisors, and coordinators. A career pathway like this fits in with the findings of the Green Jobs Task Force in 2022, which at that time said that many of the skills needed for the different parts of retrofitting, in which it forecasted something like a quarter of a million people are going to be needed by the end of the decade, by the way, would come through upskilling routes, particularly from existing tradespeople like plumbers, builders, electricians, and so on. Now, here are a couple of perspectives on that from people we've talked to recently who are close to this whole area of retrofit. First, we have Marianne Heaslip of People Powered Retrofit, which is a not-for-profit community benefit society based in Manchester that supports domestic retrofit projects in the Northwest, and that includes the training of retrofitters. And second is Nathan Gambling. Now, Nathan is a heating lecturer as well as a heat pump and training consultant and is also the host of a renewable energy podcast called Beta Talk. Now, let's hear from Marianne and Nathan on the subject of upskilling for retrofit. A lot of existing training in this area isn't necessarily very accessible to people who are already working in construction, you know, plumbers and and electricians and builders already doing what they call the RMI work. So the people who are already doing house extensions and kitchen installs and that kind of thing. And given the scale of the problem, it feels like unless we get people who are already in the industry and already know something about building to skill up will never get there. It's not always training. Sometimes it's just familiarisation. At the end of the day, we want people to be able to do a particular job. And we always think that involves a course. Some of these engineers out there are very, very clever people. Sometimes it's just a 10-minute conversation for them to become familiar with something they were not aware of previously. And sometimes that's all it takes. Michael, obviously, there's a range of start points and pre-experience levels here for people going into retrofit, but a lot of the process of gaining qualifications uh, seems to be around either short, sharp courses or perhaps even proving competence without the need for additional training. Yes, I think it's always important that we clarify our thinking of what demonstrated competence means. It means the ability to apply the knowledge and skills required to perform critical functions, duties, or tasks for a specific role and occupation. And in that will also be the standard and also the speed at which you can do it. Invariably, the only place you can do that is at work. And so we need a system that can capture that capability of putting in a particular piece of technology, but also getting that piece of technology to operate to a certain standard and level of efficiency and connect it to other elements of a total energy system for a house. And so the whole issue around competence and assessment will be a critical part of this. And hopefully, through the wonders of digital technology, we'll have a perfect record of the work and also the performance of that work over time. So we should be able to do a lot of that without burdensome paperwork or excessive numbers of visits, which are fairly expensive. That's well and good for people already in the workforce and looking to upskill. But what about new entrants to the workforce coming from schools or colleges or perhaps older people trying to establish themselves with a retrofit career in the green economy? Well, there is a new low carbon technician standard from the Institute for Apprenticeships 
But this has been slow in coming. And what we're seeing is that some forward-looking companies have started to do training of their own, building competences among young people, perhaps with the help of people like Nathan Gambling. And one of those companies is Your Energy, Your Way, which is a renewable installer based in the southeast, working with solar panels, heat pumps, batteries, car charging and smart energy solutions. And here's Your Energy, Your Way's founder, Leah Robson, telling us about their newly established training program. We realised what we needed to do was build up a group of people who could do the job really well and also wanted to train other people. So in April this year, we launched a a crowdfunding campaign. We now have five female trainees. We didn't advertise specifically for women and we haven't selected specifically for women. We've selected the best people that have come along. But um, in our advertising, we made sure that we were getting the message out to some different people and framing it in a different way. Also, we're paying these people the living wage rather than the apprenticeship wage, because every time I've met somebody from a slightly different background who is in this sector, they've pretty much always come in slightly older. No, there are a couple of interesting points in that clip. First, Leah talks about a really creative crowdfunding campaign that they put together to support the taking on of trainees. And secondly, she also talks about an important topic for sustainability, and that is diversity. In Leah's case, making the world of sustainability employment more accessible for women. And the world of sustainability isn't too diverse right now, is it, Michael? No, it isn't. And unless we have a very active policy on this, and I mean policy by action at local level and company level, we will just end up reproducing the lack of diversity we already have. We're already seeing evidence of that in the work done by the Boston Consultant Group just showed that if we don't get that transition right, a lot of the new growth in the green economy will be male dominated. Its own projections were it would put back diversity by 10 to 15 years. We have only found high levels of diversity in two prominent roles around solar and around sustainability leadership, where there's almost parity between males and females. And that's before you get into other protected categories on the diversity spectrum. So it is a major challenge going forward. It does mean that the whole careers advice, both into apprenticeships, into degree programs, into T-levels, has to really work very hard to ensure that we get diversity at the very beginning stages of the whole advice system. And one of the things Leah said to us when we talked to her is that these are good jobs, They're relatively well paid. They're interesting jobs. So it's crazy that effectively 50% of the population could be in a situation where they're ruling themselves out of these jobs. Another contractor we spoke to who specialised on the electrical side, saying his electricians are earning 60 to 70,000 pounds a year, fairly well paid. He said, that's great, but it does mean, how do I get people to go into colleges to train the future people who are played possibly two thirds of that? My electricians want to do the work, A, because they enjoy it, but also they're well paid. So there is an issue around the nature of pay and the careers for people who will actually front up and run, design and deliver training courses for the green economy as well. A good question to finish on. Thank you, Michael. And thank you for listening to this City and Guilds Green Edge podcast. This podcast is produced in association with The Green Edge, to which you can subscribe at greenedge.substack.com dot com.